Our scripture reading this morning is Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is God's word. This is our second Sunday in Ephesians, so we're just underway, and we're looking at Ephesians the first half of this year for two reasons, encouragement and exhortation. I told you that last week, it bears repeating. We need the encouragement that the first three chapters in particular give us, first three chapters of Ephesians, are shovelfuls of encouragement, all that God has done for us in Christ. We need that. We also need the exhortations that we get in the last three chapters of Ephesians, exhortations to Christ-likeness. And so we get both, and it's a, a very good study for us to spend our time in. Text that Corey just read, verses 1 to 14, we looked last week at verses 1 to 6, focused on that. This morning, we'll focus now on verses 7 through 14. I mentioned last Sunday, and Ken put it in the preparing for worship email that you get every Saturday as well. I hope you're reading those emails. It gives you what we're doing uh, so that you can prepare ahead of time. Think about the songs. Think about the lyrics. There's links in that. Look for that every Saturday from Ken. But he put that in uh, yesterday's uh, preparing for worship email that verses 3 to 14 is one sentence in Greek. It's not that way in English. We just couldn't read it. It's a 201-word sentence. But in Greek, uh, it's one sentence. And, and my sermon title, The Gospel 201, reflects the count, how many words there actually are in this famous New Testament sentence. But I'm also playing off uh, college course numberings. We're all familiar with uh, something 101. You could talk about the Gospel 101, and you're talking about the basic declaration of faith in Christ. And then uh, you could go to 201, and that means that the subject is going to get a little bit more explanation. If you ask me, what is the gospel? Just simply put, what is the gospel? I'll give you a 101 answer. It's the declaration that everything that separates us from God is covered by the life, 
death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Or if you prefer, you ask me, what is the gospel? And I give you a simple declarative answer. You could just take verse seven out of chapter one. This is the gospel. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Gospel 101 is declaration. Gospel 201 gets us into a little more explanation. What we have in this passage. Why did God redeem? And what is God's want to? What does he get out of all this? And the answer we're given in the text is in verse 11. Notice verse 11 again. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. He works all things according to the counsel of his will, verse 11, to the praise of his glory, verse 12, and also verse 14. We're looking at things repeated as we go through here. His will is his want to. A lot of times when you think about will, you think it's sort of this exertion, I have to make myself, you know, the willpower idea. But God's will is his want to. I hope that will come across in this message that he's not a reluctant savior. He wants to be an adoptive father. And so when you get into the explanation, Gospel 201, Gospel 101 is a declaration of what God has done for us in Christ. You get into 201, give me a little more explanation of that. Why does God redeem? What's his want to? The answer in the text, verse 11, is that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then verses 12 and 14, put with that, to the praise of his glory. And what's significant about to the praise of his glory is that in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant arrangement, the glory of God was inaccessible to people. But in Christ, the glory of God has been made accessible. We can now get in. And this was the counsel of God's will. To keep using that terminology in verse 11. This was the counsel of God's will, his want to, all along. Remember back uh, last Sunday, verse 4? Look back up in verse 4. It has that reference to God choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's how far back the counsel of God's will goes. We can't see that far back. We know nothing about that far back before the foundation of the world, as verse 4 puts it. We know nothing about that far back except we know this, that even then God had fatherly, redemptive purposes even before he created Salvation, that tells us, was never a plan B. God had the will all along to love you and me and our brothers and sisters in Christ the world over. And in the counsel of his will, again this terminology in verse 11 is really key. In the counsel of his will, God knew he would be most glorified in a world in which those who defy him become sons and daughters of his dearly loved. A world in which God adopts is a world in which he gets the most glory for himself. Talked a little bit about that last week. But all this is part of the counsel of his will, which is the why. It is his want to. The counsel of his will is why he wants to save. And he wants to save. He's not a reluctant savior. So with this in mind, what do, we, what do we draw out of our time looking at verses 7 through 14, this slice of the passage this morning? Remember last week, building on last week, 
Our emphasis last week was the blessing of adoption. Remember that? Adoption is mentioned there in verse 5. We talked about adoption as God is my home and that our understanding of Christianity will not be better than our grasp of adoption and that adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. Look at verse 5 again. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. With that in mind, from last week, let's focus today on two realities that we also get from this passage more in verses 7 through 14. Two realities. The first we'll look at is the purpose of God for his children. We are children of God because we've been adopted by him. So that's what we're going to look at first. The purpose of God for his children. And then second... We'll talk about the generosity of God to his children. The purpose of God for his children. The generosity of God to his children. Just to get some bearings on that, first note that purpose is a repeated word. And again, as you go through scripture, you're always looking for things repeated. And you've got a lot of repeated words. We can't handle them all in the time that we have, but there's a lot of re- repetition in this, uh, in this passage. But notice this word purpose. It's uh, repeated in verse 5. Verse 5, according to the purpose of his will. Verse 9, we get the word purpose. Made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Mystery in this context is something that was hidden for a long time, but now is known. We know what the gospel is. We don't know every single aspect of God's counsel, but we know this is what he wanted. Purpose is there. Verse 5, verse 9. Purpose is also in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So let's talk first about the purpose of God for his children as he adopted. And then we'll talk about the generosity of God to his children. Because uh, the generosity is here in terms like lavish. See in verse 8, he lavished upon us. What did he lavish upon us? Redemption, forgiveness, the riches of his grace. All that in verse 7. Verse 8, he lavished this upon us with all wisdom and insight, meaning... He held nothing back. Verse uh, 11 and 14 twice repeats the word inheritance. This is also part of the the generosity of God, our inheritance. Look at verse uh, 14, the Spirit of God, end of verse 13, first of verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Spirit of God. It's, It's like the language here. It's like the Spirit of God is on loan to us. Until we see Jesus face to face, which is the goal of our salvation. And God guarantees that we will see him. So first, let's key in on the purpose of God for his children. Now, when we talk from this passage about the purpose of God, we have to note that purpose is linked to a word predestination. Look again at verses 5 and 11 and note this linkage. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So note that predestination and purpose are linked in verse 5. They're also linked down in verse 11. In him we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined, there it is again, according to the purpose, there it is again, of him who works all things to the counsel of his will. And his will is his want to. He's not reluctantly working all things to the counsel of his will. He's not a reluctant savior. And because he's not, this makes predestination a beautiful doctrine. One of the most beautiful that we have in scripture, in fact. How so? 
Because isn't predestination a denial of our free will? That's what I heard. Predestination, I'm not supposed to believe in that. It's a denial of our free will. Well, it might be if we truly had free will. <laughs> but our will, human will, our will is enslaved to our sin nature. Only God has true free will because he's never sinned. We chose sin, every one of us. When we talk about free will, we often assume neutrality. And that's the issue that we have with free will because we assume we're neutral. God comes along and says, I offer you life. Well, sure, I want that. Or no, I don't want that. Uh, and then we, we choose from this, this basis of neutrality. But our will isn't neutral. We made a choice. We chose sin. We openly and willingly participated in an ancient rebellion that goes all the way back to a garden called Eden. We chose to sin. Martin Luther, the uh, great redeemer, redeemer. Some people think that. Lutherans think that, I guess. Martin Luther, the reformer, I meant to say. That's what you heard. Martin Luther, the reformer, wrote a book some 500 years ago called The Bondage of the Will. It's still a good book to read. That's my understanding of human will. And so predestination is not a denial of our free will because for those of us guilty of sin, which is all of us, free will doesn't actually exist. Yes, you're free in the chip aisle to choose between nacho cheese Doritos and Cool Ranch Doritos. You can make a free exercise of your will to do that. I choose Cool Ranch myself. But you're not free to not have a sin nature. And that's the issue, that's the point we're talking about free will as it relates to God saving us. We are not free to not have a human fallen nature. Predestination is about God overriding by grace our fallen defiance of him to turn us to himself. And God doesn't force himself on us. Does it feel forced to you? You who are redeemed, you feel forced into this by God? You may have been a reluctant convert. You may be like C.S. Lewis saying he was the most reluctant convert in all of England when God saved him in 1929. But um, God doesn't force himself. In fact, look at the terminology in the text. I love how the Bible is so both and. We get, we get so either or, and the Bible is so both and. Look at verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. You did that. You believed in him. He conditioned you. He brought you along. His calling proves effective. God doesn't force himself onto us, but he calls us out and away from looking in sin for what we ought to find rightly and only in him. And his calling proves effective. God loves you and me in such a way that he graciously overcomes our resistance to him, our defiance and rebellion. And that's why I call predestination a beautiful doctrine. I realize there are Christians who ugly it up, okay? I realize there are Christians who like to play who's most reformed among us games. Some of them may have soured you on this doctrine. There are some poor ways to hold this doctrine. But predestination, the point of it is not just that God is an intentional Savior. The point is also that he's not a reluctant Savior. Both sides of the coin are valuable. He's not tight-fisted with his grace. His purpose with and for us is to want us. And so predestination is a doctrine that teaches us we are desired by God. He wants us with him always. 
He wants to give us as an inheritance his unfiltered glory. You know, maybe you came in here this morning discouraged in your relationship with the Lord. I think it's true of every Sunday. There's always someone, probably more than we might think, who come into a worship setting and their, and their burden is that they're, they're discouraged in their relationship with the Lord. Because um, maybe you've come to think that God tolerates you. Uh, you're sure uh, he's sorry that he ever brought you into his family. He regrets this, you think. Many Christians think that. It's called getting down on yourself. I have a propensity to it myself. What do we do when we get down on ourselves like that? When we begin to compete with what the gospel preaches to us, with all of this uh, 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 self-generated disdain for our, ourselves, what, what do we do with that? You preach the gospel to yourself again and again. You preach the gospel to yourself from this passage. Hear me preach it. Don't fight it. Hear me preach it. Let it soak into your heart. Seek out the company of friends who will preach the gospel to you. Get it tattooed on your left shoulder. Get an Ephesians 1 sleeve if you like. Okay? Whatever you got to do to get this, not just onto you, but into you. Get what's here because right here in this passage, the beauty of this passage among other beauties, is that God forever dispels the notion, lest it, get, lest it seep into his children's heart and mind and soul, he forever dispels the notion that we are anything other than deeply loved by him and wanted by him. A few years ago, I was asked to help a national ministry with a conference locally. The ministry was coming to Memphis to put on this conference, and I had a very small role on the stage. Uh, but behind the scenes, leading up to the conference, I was asked to sit in on a meeting, a, a small group of, of pastors and representatives of that ministry, um, because some offense had been taken by some pastors in our city over certain details of the conference planning. Long story, not worth even getting into. It got resolved. But we met in a church downtown to talk it out. And in that meeting, I remember one of the, the executives of the national ministry asking uh, the pastors, are we welcomed? Are we wanted? And one of the pastors on the other side of the table said, you're welcomed, but you're not wanted. I think a lot of us, especially those of us who grow up in church, think of God welcoming us into redemption, but not really wanting us as his own. We feel welcomed and we hear the gospel to a point. We feel welcomed but not necessarily wanted. I'm here to tell you this morning from the authority of this passage that's not our God. This passage rings with intentionality merged with the beauty of God wanting you and me in his family. He could have passed us over. I mean, you know, verse 10 presents it grand, glorious, his plan for the fullness of time, verse 10, to unite all things in him, Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. That's pretty big. <laughs> That's pretty outsized. 
We'll get over to chapter 6 and we'll learn that there are principalities and powers at work in the universe. There's places we don't even know about. Of course not. It's big and expansive what God is doing. And yet, the counsel of his will all along was to, within this plan and purpose, unite you and me to himself in Christ. You know what this passage is teaching? God's control over everything is not demonstrated by power so much as love. Isn't that a wonderful thing to think about? God's control of over, over everything is not demonstrated by power so much as love. Don't misunderstand me. He has great power. I'm not playing power and love off one another. Absolutely he's powerful, but he uses his power to will and to want a people for himself to the praise of his glory. That's some of the best stuff I know. The purpose of God for his children. Now, second, a couple of minutes on this and we'll be done. The generosity of God. A couple of minutes when a southerner says it's by like seven or eight. The generosity of God to his children. We also see that in this text. Where do you see generosity? Well, you pick up the term there in verse 8. He lavished upon us. What did he lavish upon us? Verse 7, redemption, forgiveness, the riches of his grace. Where else do you see generosity in this passage? Well, the references to inheritance. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse uh, 14, the Holy Spirit from verse 13, verse 14, is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It's a now and not yet reality. We live behind the veil. In Corinthians, Paul talks about it as right now we see everything as though looking through a glass darkly, but eventually we will know fully even as we are fully known. Eventually we will, we've come into the glory of God now, but eventually we will see it unfiltered. We will see the face of Jesus. That's what he means by taking possession of it. File all of this under generosity, the generosity of God to his people, his children. Uh, do you know the story of J. Paul Getty? Uh, some of you will remember that story, remember that name. One of the most famous misers who, who ever lived. Uh, I used the word tight-fisted earlier, I think, and that was the American oil tycoon, J. Paul Getty. Uh, in 1957, Forbes magazine declared him the richest man in the world. So he was the Elon Musk of his time. He was the uh, Jeff Bezos of his time. He was the Bill Gates of his time, the, the, the super wealthy that we think of today. Uh, my youngest son, is, is he can only remember Bill Gates' name, but he's always fond of, of uh, he's done this a number of times, of could Bill Gates afford that building right there as we go by, you know? Could Bill Gates buy that car lot, you know? Yes, always the answer is yes, yes. He could do that, he could do that. Conceivably, he could do that. He has billions and billions of dollars. Well, that was J. Paul Getty back in his day in the 50s. 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, he made, he made his fortune in oil. And yet, he did things like uh, Getty had a pay phone installed. Now, I just realized there's some in the room who don't know what a pay phone is. You can Google that. Just put in payphone. And it even had a cord on it. And see what we had to used to go into, these little boxes with a phone. You had to put coins in it. Coins. You can Google that, what a coin is. So he had a payphone installed in his London home for guests to use. A gazillionaire. For all the money he had, 
he was famously uh, skin flinty. He was Scrooge uh, to the nth degree. Um, there's a movie uh, came out a few years ago. I actually watched it on a plane. You can Google planes as well, what those used to be, uh, before we uh, got all grounded. Um, there was a movie uh, called All the Money in the World. And it tells the story of J. Paul Getty's grandson being kidnapped for ransom in Italy back in, in 1973. For, for all the money in the world that J. Paul Getty had, he pinched pennies <laughs> badly. <laughs> He'd been them. He pinched them so hard. He married five women. He had five sons. Now, his namesake, John Paul Getty Jr., had four sons, including John Paul Getty III. Both the son, Jr., and the third, the grandson, were wayward. But in 1973, as I mentioned, the grandson, John Paul Getty III, got kidnapped by the Italian mafia through no fault of his own. And uh, they held him for six months. He was kidnapped because of his name and because he was easy access. And he was held for six months, and um, there was all these negotiations going on. There was a ransom asked uh, by the Getty family for $17 million to get the grandson back. They even severed off one of his ears and mailed it to a newspaper in Rome to show that they meant uh, business. Well, by the time the ransom was paid, it was negotiated down to $3 million because uh, Getty Sr.'s accountant told him that was the, um, the ceiling of his tax deduction to be able to write it off. So he gave the money to his son, John Paul Getty Jr., and said, uh, you owe this back to me at 4% interest to spring his grandson free. Getty Sr. at first had said, I won't pay any ransom uh, because, here was his words, I have 14 other grandchildren. If I pay one penny to the captors, I have 14 kidnapped grandchildren. Now, you maybe think he had a, maybe you think he had a point. That's fine if you do. Uh, you think he had a right to do and do not with his money as he wanted. We have different uh, settings on that in this room probably. But what, here's what was remarkable to people who followed the story is how the cold-bloodedness went both ways. You had the cold-bloodedness of the captors, for sure. I mean, slicing off a teenager's ear. Um, they don't grow back. But you had the, you had the cold-bloodedness of J. Paul Getty Sr., the family patriarch, who, it was obvious, did not really want to be bothered and sure didn't want his money affected by his own family, the people he was most responsible for, even in in the world, even though he had all the money in the world. The generosity of God, who actually does have it all, verse 10 says so. The generosity of God to his children is that he will be bothered by us, if I can put it that way to you. He will go to the effort of springing us from the captivity we are in to our own sin, much less Satan and death with a capital D. He paid the high cost. He met the terms. And then some. And he did so willingly. He bound himself to us willingly. So much so that he willingly spent for us even the cost of his own beloved son. You know that. But do you understand that that's what it means to be part of the family of God? 
the lengths to which God will go to show you that he wants you. He's not a reluctant Savior. He's a generous Savior. It's the largesse of God to and for us. Nothing held back. Again, as verse 8 says, he lavished all this upon us, the riches of grace, in all wisdom and insight. That's not just tagged on for flowery language. In all wisdom and insight means he held nothing back. The counsel of his will includes you and us fully. It's precisely God's generosity with us that makes our salvation such a large thing, even a cosmic thing. Again, verses 9 and 10, look what he's doing. A plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. The implications of this is it's, we, we know what he's done in part and eventually we'll know it in full. But even now, the part we know is beyond our present scope of perception. What all God is doing in bringing a people to himself, a people that he wants, which includes us. Our gospel is anything but small. God will be known throughout the universe. Things seen and unseen, he will be known by all for his generosity. What else would we expect from a God who is working everything for his glory? It's good stuff. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to you. We are humbled, amazed, in awe. And if we aren't, Lord, let this scripture dwell in us and with us until we are. Not for the sake of being awed so much, as for the sake of never again doubting that your care for us is true, that your will for us is your want to of us, that we wouldn't doubt that. Lord, make us people who preach the gospel to ourselves. There is no hoarding of it, for if we preach it to ourselves, we'll want to preach it to others. We'll want the declaration to be crisp and clear. We'll want the explanation to uh, begin to penetrate the darkened minds of people around us whom we love and whom we want to know you. Lord, thank you for what you're accomplishing, present tense, based on what you accomplished, past tense, and future tense is exciting and something to long for and look to because it's better, so much better than anything here. And Lord, we don't pray that or affirm that as escapists, but as people who are being made new in Christ. Thank you for a service here this morning that has spoken to that over and over again. We praise you, Jesus, for doing all things well. And we praise you, Lord God, for all your grace to us. In Jesus' name, amen.